Good evening, everyone. Praise God. Thank you for welcoming me and letting me up here. And it's an honor to be with you. I'm going to speak from Matthew chapter 4. So I'll say a few introductory things, but you could be on your way there if you want. We'll turn to Matthew 4.12. I just want to share a few words about God's kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom, both from a biblical point of view and then, of course, practical. But yeah, I'm traveling with my daughter, Faith. I was going to introduce her, too. So she is our ministry's intern right now. She is finishing her ministry degree at FIRE, and so she has to finish with an internship. She did three months in Thailand with our, um, my wife's sister and brother-in-law, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. They're amazing servants of the Lord there in northeast Thailand. Is that right? Uh, maybe. Anyway, they're, they're like the, I, I see them as like the Heidi Baker, Roland Baker uh, folks of Thailand. They have a powerful church planning ministry, the sweetest humble people. Anyway, Faith was with them and fit right in. All these precious Thai people, these rice farmers who for centuries with, are without the gospel, now have these Christians in this gospel. And they're just loving Faith and holding her hand, and she's teaching them English. And then she came to finish. She's teaching them English. Yeah, like a few words is what I meant. But then she came to finish her internship with me where I have her getting me coffee. So it's been a wonderful full internship for Faith. Pray for her that her latte art improves because that's what we've been working on. But before that, she was also doing spiritual things. Um, so it's, this is her trip for her internship. So it's nice to have her with me. And I, I just keep hearing this, this scripture echoing in me. I was feeling it from earlier, just talking with the brothers for a little while. Um, but that, that verse in Malachi 4, it's actually talking about the day of the Lord that's coming. And it also speaks of judgments coming and the day that's coming is burning like a furnace. But for you who fear my name, which refers to the covenant people and for us, the new covenant people by faith, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You'll tread upon the wicked and they'll be like ashes under the soles of your feet. For us, of course, that's spiritual warfare. But I just want to encourage you because I. I just feel in my heart the Lord saying that. I keep seeing like a, a sun rising upon you and dawning upon you. And I just believe that he's rising on you and there's healing in his wings for you. And the light is shining. I wanted to mention that. In fact, let me just pray to open things up and I'll pray into that a little bit. Abba, Father, we are so grateful for your wonderful faithfulness. You are the sovereign on the throne over all creation. You are like nothing and no one else. You alone are God from everlasting to everlasting, and there is no other. You dwell in unapproachable light. You are holy, holy, holy. The psalmist said, well, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. And yet at the same time, hidden in the wounds of Christ and bought by the blood of Jesus, we have great joy and come to you boldly as you sit on the throne of grace. We, we tremble because you're awesome. You're God that never changes. But you welcome us like a tender-hearted father. You are a tender-hearted father, welcoming us into your arms before your throne boldly with confidence and as your family. We love you. 
We bless your holy name. We are grateful for all of your benefits. We give you thanks. And we declare in your presence with all of our hearts that Jesus is King and Lord. He's alive from the dead. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Our eyes are on you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, 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 the wonderful incarnate Son of God, we bless your name. We thank you and we ask you. We ask you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, for that spirit of wisdom and of revelation right now to open the eyes of our hearts to see new dimensions of your, your royalty and your kingdom in their awesome beauty, but also in the practical implications for our hearts and lives. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for your precious people here, that you will come upon them in a fresh way. I pray for infusions of your spirit, fresh baptisms uh, in your spirit. Lord, baptize us afresh that their hearts might be mighty and strong. Even while we're weak, you are strong. Lord, we are weak, but when we lean on you, we experience your strength. Strengthen the heart of your people. I pray for healing. I pray that your dominion would come and you would eradicate these different bondages and sicknesses and diseases and weaknesses in our spirit, souls, and body. Lord, minister to your people as a shepherd, a good, great shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, who's alive from the dead. But Lord, by your spirit, we pray for your, your wonderful ministry to, to, to bless and to heal and to work, that your people might be strong, that they might be oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he, that you, Lord, may be glorified. Father God, we love you. Jesus, you are King and Lord, alive from the dead. You deserve such a people. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. Praise God. So I want to I bring out just a few aspects of God's kingdom from this passage. I'm going to start as far up in, uh, uh, in verse 12, just to give some context, but I'll, we'll really hit the ground in about verse 17. Okay, that's when I'll get excited. Before that, I'll sound bored. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. That's nonsense. Let's just carry on here. So verse 12, <clears throat> Jesus by this time has been tested in the wilderness the Spirit led him to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he is fulfilling where Israel failed historically in the wilderness. Becoming, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, being shaped, according to Hebrews 5, into the, the, the man without sin that would have been worthy to shed his blood to purchase us. For God, and he's coming out of the desert in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Matthew's about to tell us why he did that. He was following the spirit still, but he's reading these texts from Isaiah that are giving him immediate guidance, even geographically. He was raised in Nazareth. He made Capernaum his hometown base during his ministry. And this is by the sea in this region, and here's why in verse 14. This is to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. 
And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So again, historically, these lands were judged by empires coming from the east because they had forsaken the Lord and the rod of God's anger had come in the earlier days, the Assyrian Empire came and these, these regions got the brunt of the beginning of this terrible attack. And Isaiah is prophesying about that and into that and saying one day the light of God is going to shine in that region where there was such gloom because of contempt and judgment, there's coming a great light. And Jesus said, now that's talking about me. So this young olive-skinned Nazarene, a very special young man, born without a biological father, but fully human, the eternal son of God, who over the, the days and years of his life before his time to be released into ministry, getting more and more used to and conditioned as to who he really is, is reading in these texts, there's coming a day where the father's saying, I'm sending you there, and that day came and the light dawned. And so Jesus, in verse 17, launches a ministry. This is Matthew's uh, description. He's launching this ministry, and Matthew is summarizing Jesus' sermon and the, the gist of his preaching in the early days. It's interesting that Jesus' early sermons can be summarized with the word repent. The kingdom's here. <laughs> That's like a thumbnail version. I mean, we get lots of teaching and preaching for Jesus in the gospel, so there's more to it than this. But, but when he launched his ministry, this was pretty much the summary, just like his cousin John, the baptizer. It's just, you know, I just love Jesus. I want to stick with him. He preached the kingdom and called people to repentance. Nowadays, we're often allergic to kingdom preaching and requiring and calling people to repentance, but it was really the gist of Jesus' preaching and teaching. And that's not Old Testament, that's New Testament. Jesus is the Lord, he's Messiah and King. You can't get more New Testament than that. So from that time, Jesus began to preach. And he was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we're going to read on for the other couple of points, but I'm going to make my first point about the kingdom right here from verse 17. God's kingdom requires repentance. And there's reasons for that. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But I, I just want to talk about this issue of the kingdom for a moment because Jesus came preaching the kingdom. This is the fulfillment of great promises from the Old Testament, specifically in the context of Israel and Judaism. The prophets have promised that one day one of David's son would be heir to his throne and rule Israel and therefore and thereby rule the world. So one day this king would rise up and be anointed and take his throne and bring the glory back to Israel and bring God's peace if you take the right passages at the right time. You know, Isaiah talks about there will be no end to his government nor of peace. He'll bring peace to Israel and to the world. There will be great peace under the dominion of this great king. And of course, he bring deliverance to his people. Other images that Daniel used, and this is one of Jesus' favorite reference points. From Daniel chapter 7. By the way, those promises to David are scattered throughout, but especially 2 Samuel 7, right? Where Nathan brings this oracle. You're not going to build um, me a house. I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to install you on the throne. If your sons 
If your sons are disobedient, I'll chastise them. But my covenant loyalty will never leave your house. Your throne will endure forever. One day, one of your sons will rule. Come on. And of course, Psalm 89 is speaking of this. God's committed as this, like the, the sun and the moon in their, in their courses. I, you know, my promise is good to Israel to keep David's son on the throne. And so when Jesus says, look, that kingdom is near, he's saying something. He's saying that dominion is here now. So the expectations of the people, especially after John, they're, they're rising high. The anticipation is high. And Jesus is claiming what you've been waiting for and what you've been dreaming about, even though it's going to come in a way you don't expect, what you've been dreaming about and waiting for, even now still under Gentile oppression, it has drawn near. And the first response, like a first responder response kind of thing, is not something like, hey, it's all right now. I'm going to gather a militia and we're going to take over. We're going to march on Rome. I'm going to give the kingdom to these elders and these priests and these Pharisees, these Puritans, and, and everything's going to be great now. You're, you're, you're back in charge, Israel. That wasn't his first uh, required response that these promises are being fulfilled. His first re response was repent. Because the issue is not first political. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of our lives. It's a matter of fidelity to the Lord. Other images, and this is what I was talking about before with one of Jesus' favorite references, if not his favorite reference about his own calling was the title Son of Man that was repeated in different places with God calling Ezekiel a son of man, referring to his humanity, but also his dignity as a prophet, of course, Psalm 8. But then most pointedly, uh, Daniel chapter 7, especially verses 13 and 14, in this scene of these beasts, a few verses earlier, these beasts, these monsters, these hybrid animal type things that represented the, the different empires that had been ruling the world, right, as Daniel prophesied from chapter 2 and now something similar in chapter 7. These beasts are, you know, giving one to the other dominion. And then the final beast is the worst one. And it's raging. It's the, these beasts, are, by the way, are coming from the sea, which is important symbolism. They're coming from below in these chaotic seas. Such a magnificent picture that these, these thrones are set up in the heavens and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. What a solemn moment. How holy this must have been. The Lord's council is gathering. And as much as these beasts are raging, the sovereign over all creation is coming to judge. He's got the final word. So here he comes. All rise. <laughs> that must have been quite a scene. The Ancient of Days he comes, and just through the visionary experience of the prophet, he can see eternity on this indescribable person who's probably funneling his glory a great deal just so he can kind of be perceived by this little tiny prophet, these little itsy-bitsy little tiny eyeballs, looking at the Ancient of Days coming, walking like eternity with this, these vestiges and this look like this older man but as, as young as young could be, eternity himself. Taking his seat, the court sits with him, these scrolls are open, and these beasts are judged. And the last one is slain. That's the court. The decision has been made. These kingdoms will not last. They will be judged. They will be destroyed. In spite of their 
their rebellion and their blasphemy. And then, coming with the clouds, one like a son of man. So do you see the contrast between the disturbed sea below with these hybrid beasts that are ugly and demonic looking? They're coming from below and they're animalistic and even not even nice, good animals. They're just all mixed together. But here comes a human looking figure. And he's not coming from below. He's coming from above. He's coming with the clouds and he's not looking like a beast. He looks like a man, a good man. God's son, the Messiah, is coming with the clouds. And to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So that all kingdoms for all ages will worship and serve him. So when Jesus came, he referred to himself as the son of man. And he proclaimed the kingdom. Because he was saying, however awesome and apocalyptic Daniel's visions and symbolism may have been. Jesus came even in his humble Nazarene form who grew up as one of the neighborhood boys on the streets of Nazareth. His own family members and neighborhood families stumbled over him because he was just one of the kids, and now he's suddenly rising up and speaking with authority and healing. He's saying, I'm that man, and that kingdom is here. But Daniel didn't detail this part. He didn't show you it would look like this for a season. Because I'm going to accomplish Daniel 7, so to speak, Jesus speaking. I'm going to accomplish Daniel 7 this way. I'm going to preach the kingdom to the towns and the villages and the hamlets of the Galilee. And then down south around Jerusalem. That's where we're beginning. So the irony is thick. If you can imagine Jesus at the end of his earthly life before he rose again to, to a new heavenly earthly life. But at the end, he was on this kangaroo court where the the leaders of Israel were bringing false witnesses against him. And he was there, at least from their perspective, under the weight of their accusations, however confused they may have been, trying to get their stories straight. They finally had something they would accuse him of, and that was blasphemy and claiming to be God's son. But to them, he's the guilty party. He's being judged by their religious court. And, and, and even though these are Jewish people, because of the posture they're taking toward God's own son and their own Messiah, they are essentially extensions of those very beasts that were raging against the throne in Daniel 7. Especially when you consider the irony that Jesus was being tried on a court. And then he, in that very setting, when he was pushed to the point, he said, When he was asked, are you then the son of God? He said, you have said it, I am. And you will see the son of man at the right hand of power coming in glory. He refers to that Daniel 7 story, right? As if to insinuate, this is really like insinuated, but it's like you are, you have me on trial, but what's really happening is I have you on trial, right? Because the very system that you represent has been judged by the ancient of days, And that's the very way I'm getting the kingdom. But right now, it does not physically and certainly not politically look like Daniel 7. But this is the way the kingdom operates. The great kingdom that will consume the whole earth one day. There'll be nothing but God and his dominion and nature rejuvenated eternally and his covenant people. There'll be no evil. There'll be no tears. It will all be eradicated. 
Okay, that's not a utopia. That's not a dream. That's reality. That's the way God designed it. That kingdom is here now. It's not in all that physical, political, naturally dominating glory. But it's here now. It's, it's, it's somewhat incognito. So even just nine chapters over to the right, later on in the progression of Matthew's gospel, which I take to be something of a discipleship manual, and in the progression of Jesus unfolding teaching toward his disciples, he introduces them to the mysteries of the kingdom. It's here, but it's not the way it's going to be. So the way it operates, it still must be embraced by people of hunger and faith. He symbolizes that by telling parables. He he speaks in these symbols, and then the hungry press in and say, what do you mean? And he says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries. As awesome and as powerful as this kingdom is here, just like Isaiah asked in in his prophecy uh, in chapter 43, who will perceive it? And also in chapter 52. Anyway, who will perceive it? Who will perceive this kingdom? It was for the disciples. It It was for those who believed. So this kingdom is here, but it's mysterious. It's embodied by God's people. And there are dimensions here that reveal the kingdom on this side of Jesus' return. And the first one is right here. When Jesus says, repent, the kingdom has come near. Here's why Jesus proclaimed repentance. Because God is king. And in fact, our gospel proclaims that Jesus is king. And Jesus did identify himself as the king. As we just said, he referred to himself as the son of man. And certainly those who preached after Jesus referred to him as the one alive from the dead, ascended on high. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And that's why we turn to him fully. And that's why, that's where we begin. We come to the Lord Faith means a full turning to the Lord because he is king. And I believe this is one of the most important aspects of the gospel that must be restored, especially to the wealthy, resourceful, democratic, free. When I say democratic, I mean our form of democracy, free world that we, in fact, as God's people, we don't serve a council of you know, whoever we put in by voting, we serve a king who just is. And the only appropriate response to that is absolute loyalty. And that's where we begin. That's not where we wind up after we've gone to years and years of Bible school and we've thought about it as we're going to church for years and years. We begin by absolute loyalty to the king. Against the background of the Old Testament, repentance was a return to the Lord in renewed covenant. When God's people were being called back to the Lord by the prophets, they were to turn away from their sins, their disloyalty, their breaking of Torah, their idolatry, and they were called to renew their covenant with Yahweh God. And that is where Jesus is coming from. If he is king, he requires faith. But faith doesn't just mean we believe the right doctrine. It means fidelity. It means covenant loyalty. That's the first dimension of the kingdom. We don't just see it come from the sky and it just sets up a utopia. It's coming as an announcement that says the king has drawn near 
graciously, lovingly, mercifully to forgive our sins if we believe. So our first response can and must only be repentance. Let me say it like this. Technically speaking, the Lord never asks for our commitment. I know that I'm going to be nitpicky about language. Commitment's a good thing, and we make different commitments. But in the essential sense of our relationship to the kingdom, he's not asking for commitment. Commitment can be measured. I made a commitment to come here and to teach and preach a certain amount. I'm not saying I'd be open to more. I'm not saying I wouldn't be open to more. I'm not saying I would be. You know what I'm saying. But here's what didn't happen. You know, Jeremiah didn't say, and Bob, there's your cot over there. That's where you'll be sleeping. And uh, when we need the floor, you know, cleaned and maybe some teaching over here, we'll, we'll let you know. What about my family? What are you talking about? Well, maybe they'll be able to come, but you're ours now. No, I, I didn't surrender my life to you all. I made a commitment. But in the kingdom, he doesn't require commitment. He requires surrender. It's a full-on covenantal relationship. I am yours fully, forever. And that's how we begin. <laughs> that's why where Jesus began. He doesn't preach about a utopia that comes magically, some kind of universalism. He's like God's kingship has drawn nigh. Surrender and renew covenant and let's start there. That's why we're baptized when we believe. Baptism is an oath. It's like a marriage ceremony. It's when we, if you would, when we swear to God. I'm making covenant with you, Lord. Why? Because you're king. Yes, you're my friend and my good shepherd. There's no one more gentle no one more kind or patient with my sins. No one more merciful. No one, if we took all the merciful, pastoral, gentle sort of people, the compassionate ones from out all of history, added all of them together and multiplied them times a trillion, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to the Lord's compassion, mercy, tender heart, grace, kindness, gentleness, patience. Amen. But none of that militates against the reality that he is king. And the only appropriate response to the king is absolute surrender. So we're baptized and we say, I'm dead to everything in my past and alive to you alone. And transactionally, when we're born again, God severs us from our past and grants us graciously new life at his expense, not ours. But not even that grace changes the requirement that we do not merely make a commitment to the Lord. We surrender covenantally. And it's the beginning level. It's the entry level. It's how we start. It's what the apostles meant when they said justified by faith. It's fidelity. It's, it's, an, it's an allegiance to the king. And again, why? Because he's the king. It's the essence of the gospel that Jesus is king and Lord of all nations, that he's enthroned. It, it's interesting that I, at least in my, in my experience, 
according to what I've noticed, the ascension of the Lord is, is not given its place when the gospel is recounted or taught at length. I understand that we preach the cross and resurrection, and those really are the highlights when you are first making the impression of the gospel. But the ascension is when the victory he won at the cross and the resurrection over his enemies, the ascension is when he actually takes his throne and becomes king. And it's interesting that we tend to de-emphasize that part. And yet to me, that's like the essential message of the gospel, that Jesus, the king, is Lord. He's enthroned. Right? He's the real king of China and Mexico and heaven also, by the way. And even America, I'll say that off the recording. <laughs> we do have a king, whether we know it or not. And he gives a lot of latitude to these temporary governments. And he he'll take them to task, too. We read that in those texts, Psalm 82. I mean, he'll take, he'll take them to task. He'll bring chastisements. He'll teach the world righteousness, all of this. But he is the king. He's just not exerting his influence yet because he's so merciful and patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. But none of that changes that he's king. He has dominion. So the only way we begin this covenant relationship with him is making the covenant. Yielding to him in surrender. That's the first dimension of the kingdom in this passage. That it requires absolute surrender to the king in covenant. That is so awesome. And all the pressure is off because it's not like we have to manage giving him some of our lives and holding back others, which creates tension and sometimes even illness. And it's hard to do. But when we surrender everything, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he says, and that's the way I lived. So take my example. I had no agenda. Isn't Jesus amazing? No wonder children ran to him. Zero agenda. Zero need to calculate what he was saying and how to say it and how will this be taken. It's like, um, it's not about me, it's about my father, and he makes it about me, but it's just that relationship we have. <laughs> just was not there to serve his own agenda. I think that's the essence of meekness. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. There's the same surrender. Come to me, he says, if you're weary and you're burdened down, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's a call to discipleship. And, and, and what does he say? Because I'm meek and humble of heart. How many humble people do you know saying, come to me and learn from me because I'm so humble? <laughs> it really, if you listen to it that way, it sounds a little raw at best. But he can say that because he's truly humble. He's got no agenda. He goes, well, you know, I'm not serving myself. So if people think I'm arrogant because of that, that's their issue. I don't care. I'm serving people by offering myself. That's what humility is. I'm just offering myself to help everybody else, not to build my own thing or my own ministry. That's humility. He's so humble he can say it and mean it and not, not be an issue. And he, in fact, he says, come to me. When you learn that from me, you'll feel the same peace and the same rest. Praise God. Could I just encourage all of us tonight? Let's just really make that surrender to the king. If you're here and you haven't been baptized, you haven't really given that your life to the Lord or haven't gone through that, that form of declaration, confession, and really like a marriage making an oath with the Lord, so to speak, I encourage you, just get, let's do that. Let's give it all to our king because in one sense, that is the kingdom on earth right now. It comes through repentance when we see Jesus as king.
How about a couple of other points from the passage that follows? Verse 18, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. So I don't think this is by mistake that first we get the summary of Jesus' sermon or sermons throughout these synagogues and beaches and whatever else. But now a second dimension of the kingdom gets revealed to us in Matthew's narrative. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And there we have the second dimension of the kingdom that I'd like to bring out tonight. So the the kingdom means Jesus is king, but the first dimension is that we surrender to him. That's, That's the kingdom when we just surrender. But the second dimension is this, we follow Jesus. Which means, if I could say that from another angle, we follow the Lord because his kingdom becomes our way of life. Because that's what he's, you know, he's definitely calling the 12. I understand they're in a unique position, but their unique position is meant to be replicated in others. So we can take what they're experiencing as teaching for us. Surely this is all written so that disciples who are reading Matthew's gospel can say, yes, he's telling me to follow him. So Jesus is speaking to us. This is a dimension of the kingdom. This is what God's dominion looks like. It's a way of life followed by people. But it's a way of life unlike any other way of life. Here and there, some of its principles overlap with the way people might live here and there by default. It's not by the Spirit, but it may happen. But essentially, God's kingdom is in a category all by itself. And His kingdom for us, by the presence of the Spirit, for those of us who have given ourselves in covenant loyalty to the Lord, the kingdom, on a practical level, by the Spirit, is a way of life. There are ways the Lord lives. And there's ways he solves problems and reacts to gossip or to people criticizing him or to people mistreating him when he was right. And I would say he was right 100% of the time, but he was still criticized. But there's a way he responded. He didn't think of himself like having to justify himself in front of people or having to retaliate. He was gracious. He was forgiving, whatever it is. There are ways that constitute the kingdom. A lot of people want to know the Lord enough to be saved, but they don't want to press in after his heart to understand his ways. When you know his ways, you know him. Yes, Lord, you're telling us promised land. We're going. We're with you in promised land. Liberation from Egypt. Look at those seas part. And if you watch the cartoon, you see that big old giant shark or whatever it was swimming like in an aquarium and the seawall and we're just marching by. Awesome. And where are we going? Milk and honey. And you know what I'm talking about. Not like all of our processed stuff. The good stuff. He said... Wilder, uh, he said promised land, but he took him into the wilderness. 
the word said promised land, the promise said promised land, but he actually took them into the wilderness. And that tension, because I heard promised land, but I'm not looking at promised land. I don't know how many of you have visited the land of Israel and been in that Judean wilderness. I can't, I mean, you stand there and you're like, this is so beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful because you got a Jeep behind you and a road taking you back to the hotel. How about that being your apartment complex? Listen, I'm, when it comes to, like, accommodations, I, I am very American. I'm like, Lord, help me. And don't treat, please don't teach me the hard way. How did they live out here? I'm like, you got to have everything right and comfortable, and I'm not even going to get into all that, okay? But for them to get into the Judean deserts, the badlands, with the terrain back and forth, I mean, you could get lost like that, one tiny wrong turn away from your party, you walk off, you're in big trouble, man. We've been there. I had, a, I had to save some poor little rebellious woman who wanted to walk away from the party because she wanted to, um, when I say party, I mean group of people. She wanted to go pray. The Lord, thank, thank God, because she, she did not want to keep the rules when we were doing this tour thing many years ago. And she had, bless her heart, she had the Jerusalem syndrome. She was called there. She was leaving her husband, the whole bit. I mean, it was more than this. Yeah, I mean, it was bad. I'm like, I wanted to help with a tour, and this is, like, major. She's called her husband. I'm leaving. I'm going to be a prophetess in Jerusalem. Okay. So, yeah, that was, you know, part of it. And the Lord told me to put this one big dude on her when we were out in the wilderness because I had to lead this other thing. I couldn't shepherd all the people. Off she goes. Thankfully, I had that insight. It was probably, I don't even know if it had to be revelatory. Just my experience with her was saying she's probably going to wander off. One wrong turn, we'd never find her again, man. And I can't, you know, we can't do that. So I put big old Adam on her. I said, just, just, just watch her. And sure enough, off she went. Adam had to go get her. No, I can't. I can't let you go over there. I can't let you go over there. One wrong turn. It just all looks the same and all looks different at the same time. And that's what they saw. The dry badlands of the, the southern part of their, their, where they're being taken, in the, the Sinai deserts. Of course, the part of the world I'm talking about is a little bit different, but it looks the same. It's a different area a little bit, but it looks the same. They heard promised land, but they got this wilderness. And it created tension. And instead of believing that the Lord was going to bring them through, because what he said is true, they wanted the experience right away. They saw the contradiction, so they complained and basically said no, and they were stopped for 40 years, minus those two, the two good spies, right? Because they knew what the Lord said on a certain level, but they didn't know his ways, which is what Hebrews says. It tells, it explains this. Because God's way of operating is, I'm going to tell you promised land, and you better believe that's where I'm going to take you, but I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to take you first, but it won't be a problem if you understand my ways. I'm not just interested in making your life just perfect and utopia. I'm interested in developing you as people. And I can't develop you as people if I just take you in to the promised land without any testing whatsoever. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8. I took you in here and I tested you to see what was in you. Right? So he's interested in people. And if we go in, not only listening to prophetic words, but reading our Bibles, which is what God expects us to do, we would actually know his ways. 
those who know the Lord, Lord's ways, because they're not always pleasant and they're not usually our ways. But if we know them and embrace them, it means we've surrendered to him and we're, we're more interested in him than we are our circumstances. So the dimension of the kingdom that Jesus is unearthing here for us is follow me. Spend time with me and learn my ways. And sure enough, when, it, when you go further into this gospel and you read, Jesus gives all these teachings of his ways. The vibe by which he lives his life, he puts into words. The way he relates to God, his consecration, his innocence, his response to persecution. He says, here, learn this. Happier the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Don't pick out the top seats. Go to the bottom seats. If, the, if, if your brother offends you seven times a day, 70 times seven, forgive relentlessly. Lord, that's so hard. These are my ways. My dominion is not just something coming in the sky to magically make your life better. It's a way of life. And when we live by his ways in the spirit, in this world, we embody the kingdom. And we defy every other power of the air. Oh, that's the very definition of the people of God. They're a culture. They're a way of life that is heaven on the earth. You say zig, they zag. <laughs> Praise God. There's a reason why six times in the book of Acts, the church was called the way. They were the way. That's the way God looks on earth in the midst of those people. That's the lifestyle that is the way of his dominion. Oh, the king. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive. But Paul explains Jesus' dissension from his high place in Philippians 2. Treat everyone as if they're more important than you. That's the church. If we could just get into that mode, we'd have everything, the kingdom on earth, in a kingdom of love. Treating every person, treating everyone else as if they're more important. It's extraordinary, the ways of this king. His teaching about leaving your gift at the altar. It's just the ways of the Lord. I mean, it's there in all those red letters. That's not Old Testament. That's for us. Praise God. Then we live a way of life in the spirit that is then replicated by others as they're around us, watching our lives, not just listening to our words. And they get discipled by our very way of life and the words that complement them. The very ministry of an apostle, at its core, one of its most important aspects was that Paul lived a certain way of life. And it, it, was, the, it was the substance of the gospel he preached, meaning he, he lived his gospel. If he preached to crucify Jesus, he lived a crucified life. Listen to his words. He could actually say to people, he said to the Philippians, if you saw it in me, if you heard it from me, if you received it from me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Lord, help us. Who can say that? Oh, just copy me. Just whatever I do, however I respond to my spouse, however I respond to my prayer life, just everything the way I live my life, just be around me. Follow me, and if you'll just copy me, the God of heaven will be in your life. Good night. That's a tall order. 
I don't know, you just breeze by those words. You saw it in me, heard it from me, received it from me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Okay, next verse. It's like, who can say that? Imitate me as I imitate the Messiah. Paul was a paradigm. His role as an apostle meant I'm going to come in, I'm going to break in with power with the gospel, and then I'm going to disciple people by just the way I live. Of course, he was going to talk to them and spend time with them. But his, his, his whole point was, it, the way I live, that would be church if everybody did that. The, the reasons why I wept, this, the, 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 the time I spend in prayer, the way I respond to people, the way I treat people, the way I work hard with my own hands, the way I give, the way I'm generous. He was so aware of his way of life that he offered it to others to copy. And we just want to have the right doctrines out there. Paul was shaped by the ways of the Lord. In fact, he told the Corinthians, I'm sending you my beloved child, Timothy. He will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ Jesus. He didn't even say it the spiritual way. He will remind you of the ways of the Lord. He said, he'll remind you of my ways, because I'm the father of this community, and the way I live, that was a paradigm for you, and you all have left that, so I'm sending Timothy uh, to, to call you back to the way I lived. Paul was speaking about himself. And his ways were in Christ Jesus because he was a follower. The kingdom is a way of life. It is a way of life. Jesus called himself the way because first and foremost, he's the way to the Father. That's what he said. But do you hear the deeper dimensions of that language when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? To live by my spirit, which is where we begin. We receive the spirit by faith. And then to live my way by the spirit, that is life. Jesus is a way of life. Come on now. We're after those those real Jesus people who just live the Jesus way. I love thinking of it that way. But sometimes it's counterintuitive when someone says something and it was like the opposite of what I meant by that. I meant the opposite. How dare you blame? I mean, it's like, hey, you know, your reputation is not worth all this fuss. You're, 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 you're spewing bitterness right now. This isn't the Jesus way. Just forgive. Be at peace. Let them think what they want. The Lord will bring that, uh, you know, the Lord will bring that to pass. I mean, how dignified, how kingly did Jesus look on the stake? Stripped of his clothing and his dignity. There was no nothing. There's no way to bat away the flies. There's no bathroom break there's nothing it's just he i mean he had to trust god for his reputation as he's serving other people the kingdom is a way of life and it's urgent that the church capture the dominion of god as a way of life in the spirit and finally the third aspect of the kingdom which we'll look at tonight begins in verse 23 <clears throat> jesus was going throughout all galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. God's kingdom brings total shalom. 
wherever it's given leeway. God's kingdom creates peace the Jesus way. We read again, I, I referred to this earlier in Isaiah 9. because By the way, that's where we started earlier in Matthew 4. He quoted Isaiah 9. As you read further, it speaks of the child that will be born. And, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And it says there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Because wherever God rules, there's peace. That's why wherever God rules, there should also be a community of faith, because this, that includes peace, like deep harmony in our relationships. But here, it's, it's talking about the healing and deliverance ministry of Jesus, because wherever he went, there were so, there were so many wonderful reasons why he healed. You know, he loves people. He wanted them to be well. And it certainly pointed to the authenticity of his gospel. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, but rise up and walk. So amen. One of the main reasons why he healed is because that's just the fallout of his dominion. Wherever God rules, the bad goes out and the good comes. And it's not always instantaneous with us. It's sometimes a process. But wherever God rules, there's shalom. The Hebrew concept of shalom is not just the heart's tranquility. It's total well-being. Even if we're going through seasons of difficulty, where we're being stripped, where we're going through seasons of want in the natural, we have to trust God day to day, there can still be that touch of God on our lives where we're blessed. Paul lived this way. He says, I've been in abundance and I've been without. I know the secret. I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. Even where I don't know where my next meal is coming from, let alone how I'm going to pay the rent on my leather shop. The touch of God is on me. Because I'm always seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. The shalom, the well-being is on me. Spirit, soul, body, relationships. Finances in this sense. Not health and wealth all the time. I just mean the shalom of God. All is well. Where he rules, all is well. That's why wherever he went, even when people didn't repent, he would cast out demons and heal. And he said, why? If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wherever God reigns, he casts out the evil, the transgressor against the human design, and he, he establishes shalom. And that's the way this kingdom demonstrated itself in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus proclaimed, and he taught, and he healed, and he cast out demons. May the Lord give us grace to receive his kingdom tonight and evermore from these moments forward. For some of you, maybe it'll even be a watershed moment, but let's fall in love with the kingdom that Jesus said to seek first. It's exactly what the master told us to do, which is one of the reasons why, if not the main reason why I preach it and teach it as much as I can. But may the Lord's kingdom come in power, which he also taught us to pray for every day. And may it be demonstrated by signs and wonders, by healings and deliverances, not just because we love the experience of the party, but because it's the nature of his dominion. It brings shalom. In fact, the missionaries, when he sent them out, he said, give your, give your peace to that home. Show them the kingdom. I'm friends with church planters. That's how they do it when they go into hard areas. They, I mean, they heal. 
One time, a friend of mine was telling me this whole Brownsville-type service broke out amongst this, this congregation, this gathering, this special meeting of Buddhist monks in Nepal. One friend brought him to this banquet where they're all sitting in these different places, and the, 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 the interpreter, the friend of my friend, said he, he's here in the name of however they said the name Jesus in their language, and he prays for people to get healing. And so a couple of people asked for a prayer, a couple of things happened, and the next thing you know, they were swarming around him, shaking and falling as he was praying for, for them. Buddhist monks, as he spoke the name Jesus, then he had to tell a team to have to follow up on that to explain more later. It was extraordinary that wherever the kingdom rules, there is peace. And I pray for that kingdom to come in us tonight, not just in this third dimension, but in all three in Jesus' name. Let's stand together and just spend a few moments in prayer. Let's put our eyes on the king and just, just, just begin to lift your voice, just as we are, just from our hearts. King Jesus, all hail King Jesus. Our eyes are on you, Lord. Like a servant looking to his master, our eyes are on you, Lord. King Jesus, all hail King Jesus, all hail Emmanuel, King Jesus, sovereign over all creation, risen from the dead, open our eyes to see your beauty, infuse fresh faith, fidelity and belief, Lord, let us see you and your purpose in a new light, Lord, we pray now, we take our stand praying. Our Father in heaven, may your name be sanctified. And may your kingdom come. Let's pray for his kingdom to come. In our hearts, lives, families, city. The dominion of God. Our days, Lord, in our day, may we see a new kingdom movement. A true Jesus movement by the coming of your kingdom and the creation and a renewal of a covenant people. Jesus, 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 you deserve it, Lord. You deserve it, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. As we're praying for God's kingdom, let's pray for one another. If anyone is suffering with an ailment, even in your mind, your heart, your body, Let's pray for one another as there are needs and ask for the kingdom to come, for God to bring his gracious, empowering, merciful, wonderful dominion to eradicate wherever any enemy element is transgressing. But let's begin with our own heart surrender. If you're holding something back from the Lord or if there is any kind of unforgiveness in your heart, let's let God rule there first. Lord, we pray for your gracious rule to convict us. Let your spirit convict us where we need to make something right with you or with a brother or a sister or a friend or a family member. Move by your spirit. Help us, Lord, as your little children, asking you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. 
your very dominion in our lives. Let's wait on him for a few moments on that.